Hello and welcome to Open Source Underdogs. I'm your host, Mike Schwartz, and this is episode 65 with Nick Schrock, founder and CTO of Dagster, a platform that helps companies create data pipelines, which is critical to transform and update data in order to make it useful, for example, to generate reports, content, or other actionable information. Dexter might not be a blueprint you can emulate. Like all startups, there is some hard-to-replicate serendipity that enables Nick and his team to build this amazing company. But as Machiavelli says, great leaders need both fortune and virtue. In other words, you need to be good at what you do, i.e. virtue, but you also need some good old-fashioned luck. But what separates the really successful founders like Nick is the ability to harness fortune and virtue and combine it with some deep insights about the market and turn it into a profitable and fast-growing venture. Not easy to do. So with that said, let's cut to the interview and let Nick tell you, in his own words, how Dagster evolves. Nick, thanks for joining us today. Great to be with you. Can I just go back a little bit and ask you to share some of your story about how you ended from going from the University of Michigan Computer Science to working at, at Facebook. So that early period, how'd that happen? Oh, uh, I wasn't expecting you to talk about the pre-Facebook days. Um, the uh, Yeah, I'll do the quick version of that. So I graduated from Michigan in 2003, and I actually went to work at Microsoft right out of school. And Microsoft was a great company, and they treated me well, but and actually, the division I was in was the developer division, and I thought that they were just extraordinarily talented. But that at that time in my life, that wasn't for me in terms of working at a big company. So I actually decided... I wasn't actually sure if I wanted to do software anymore. So I went to the London School of Economics for a year because I thought I might want to go more into finance or even government service. You know, I was a young man kind of searching around. But I ended up getting back into software. I worked for a healthcare startup out of Ann Arbor, which is where Michigan is for, what, two and a half years? And then I went to Chicago to try to do a startup that was very quickly spun down because me and a friend who had worked in the finance industry wanted to do it. But then it was about six months before the financial crisis. So... That was uh, incredibly poor timing. So I spun that down and actually, it turns out, a friend of mine who I knew from Microsoft kind of heard that I was on the open market and, you know, just reached out and was like, hey, you know, I'm working at Facebook. It's a really special place. You should consider looking at it. And I, I was looking at, you know, staying in finance in the Chicago area. And then I flew out to Facebook and it's just the, the, the vibe difference between a place like Facebook and, a, you know, hedge fund and Chicago cannot be overstated. You know, everyone at Facebook was young, super excited, idealistic. The office was incredible. There was just all this energy versus all these miserable people working in in the hedge funds. So it was kind of the choice was obvious from there. And then, you know, off to the races after that. So what was it about Facebook in 2009 that made it such a hotbed of innovations? Like what new problems were they trying to solve? The engineering driven culture there combined with the actual product that was being built. So the product grew at unprecedented rates. It was used in unprecedented ways and was data intensive also in kind of an unprecedented way. And so we were forced to kind of do a lot of innovation on the fly in incredibly constrained environments, actually, both in terms of resources, timing, 
you know, the, we had to get stuff to work. And I think that it is true that that sort of those constraints do breed innovation. And, you know, that time of period was interesting because, you know, from the uh, 2009 was how to put this, I, we weren't really taken seriously as an engineering organization, I felt. And then fast forward, say, four to six years, and we were taken very seriously as an engineering organization. It was it was really cool to participate in that. And in the end, if you look at the output from that Eng org at that time, it really is pretty extraordinary in terms of the you know what systems were built inter- internally as well as what was open sourced. So a few years back in 2018, after being at Facebook for, I guess, maybe eight or nine years, you decide to start a company called Elemental, which becomes Dagster Labs. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about? Near the beginning of my tenure at Facebook, I helped create this team called Product Infrastructure, whose mission was to make our application developers more efficient and productive. So concretely, what that meant is that we build internal frameworks and abstractions for the engineers who actually built the site and the mobile apps to build product. You know, That team did a lot of great work, and we ended up externalizing about a bunch of that work in the form of open source. So... React came out of that group. I had nothing to do with React, but kind of the people across the hall from me, so to speak, produced React. And that obviously went on to be an extremely successful open source framework. And then what I'm personally more affiliated with is I'm one of the co-creators of GraphQL. I've lived and breathed developer tools for a long time and also seen the impact that open source adoption at scale can have. So that was definitely on the mind when I was left Facebook in 2017 and figuring out to do next, you know, and... Effectively, I was going around the valley and talking to companies both inside and outside the valley, actually, about what their biggest technical liabilities were. And this notion of data and ML infrastructure kept on coming up over and over and over. So, and I, you know, decided to dig into this. And very quickly, I discovered that this area kind of pattern matched to what I care about and the types of problems I want to work on. You know, typically the things I like to work on share a bunch of properties. You know, one are just engineers in pain. Like their dev workflows broken, they have bad abstractions, they're not productive and purely because of tooling and abstraction reasons. That actually kind of makes me angry <laughs> and frustrated on their behalf. And on a personal level, I feel that is really motivating. Second of all, finding yeah, I like to call it like a problem that matters. You know, I like working on really broad horizontal problems that could potentially have impact millions of developers, kind of core essential problems that matter. I was data engineering adjacent at Facebook, what wasn't a practitioner. Data pipelining is extraordinarily important, actually. You know, people like to dismiss it as data cleaning or, you know, they kind of have data janitor work. But when I looked at it, from kind of fresh perspective, and I really thought about it, it's like, listen, like data pipeline, they produce these assets, these data assets that drive all analytics, all the dashboards that you work with, all the ML models. And if you really think about it, these data assets drive a huge proportion of human decision-making and automated decision-making in our entire society. Who gets mortgages or not? How do we price healthcare? 
what kind of news do you see? These are fundamental, essential things, and it needs to be built on solid foundations. And the fact that it, I, for my opinion, like was not built on the appropriate tools and processes, and everyone felt it was like chaotic and out of control all the time, was deeply disturbing. So just like things were fundamentally and still in some ways are fundamentally broken in data ML engineering. So that's really motivating. You know, another thing, another property is that I like working on technologies that are sort of a strategic point of leverage in an organization. GraphQL fits that bill because if you kind of can intermediate all client-server interactions with a common software layer that you know has rich scheme information and stuff like that, it's like an enormous point of leverage for tooling. And in the data space, I quickly gravitated towards the orchestration layer because I felt it had the same properties. You know, Orchestration, orchestration data pipelines, that means it invokes every single runtime. It touches every single storage system as a result. And then likewise, any practitioner that wants to put a data asset or pipeline into production has to interact with the orchestrator in some way, shape, or form. So as a strategic point of leverage, I thought that was super Super industry. And then last, like some feeling that you have a technical insight that's novel and interesting. And that's kind of how we got to this notion of at the beginning, we call it software structured data sets, but now we call it software defined assets in data pipeline. And the basic idea is that instead of just writing a bunch of imperative tasks to string stuff together, you instead think about it, you write a software representation of the data asset that you end up wanting to ship to production and be consumed by our downstream stakeholders. So that was a very long answer, but it was kind of, I found a problem that kind of checked all the boxes for what I like to work on. And it's not just checking boxes. Like if, if those boxes are checked, I'm like deeply passionate about it. So that's kind of how I got here. So you started working on this problem at Facebook, but then you said at, at some point you sort of hit this critical mass of like pattern matching, like you said, and you're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to start actually a business. It may be in, in Silicon Valley. It's not terrifying, but it's a big step. How did that actually work? Like when did you decide, decide oh, I'm going to start a company? It's funny. I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to call exactly when it happened, but I knew like, you know, founding company was definitely something I was very interested in doing, both in terms of working on a product, but also building a culture, and especially engineering culture. That, in terms of company building, that part was very motivating. You know, in a lot of ways, I was talking about how I thought the kind of the output and culture of, you know, early Facebook engineering was pretty extraordinary. And replicating that, the good parts of that <laughs> in an independent organization was super appealing to me as well. You know, I think I just started talking to people and when, what my message and problem I identified really resonated. And then I was talking to some investors, actually not with the goal of doing a fundraise. It's kind of funny how it works like that. But there was like, Nick, like you want to look at data pipelining with your background and you know work on something that's we should really think about formalizing this with some capital in a company so you can accelerate your progress. So it's one of those things that just kind of it almost just kind of happened. And I'm a big fan of being opportunistic, you know, it's also true that from from the time I le- left Facebook, like I knew that founding a company had a lot of appeal to me. One of the podcast's previous guests, Sid Sid Brandage, once asked me, "Do you love the product or do you love the business?" And it's an interesting question. I think I know where you fall on that spectrum. And can you talk a little bit about how you came to work with Pete Hunt, the current CEO? And do you have any advice for founders on how to navigate when there's a pivot in the leadership? 
I might like the business more than you would expect. I obviously, you know, I, I, I'm reading. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm assuming you think I like the 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 product more than the business. I'm actually fair. You know, I did a bunch of economics and and business in college, and then the grad year at LSE. So. And I thought about doing an MBA, so I'm definitely business minded. And I actually, or I imagine I know annoy our FinOps people because I always like dig in about all the financial metrics and whatnot. Yeah, we can get to Pete. So I knew Pete from the Facebook days. He was one of the co-creators of React. You know, we didn't work really in depth with each other then, but we knew each other socially and through each other's work, and really kept in touch for a long time after Facebook. He wrote a small seed check into the company. And then we also collaborated actually on some podcasts because we were kind of obsessed with you know this Facebook engineering culture. And we actually put together a podcast series, Software Engineering Daily, with like 15 ex-Facebookers. And we learned about a lot about each other during that process. Pete had started a startup and sold it to Twitter. And he was working on Twitter. And I was also talking to him on and off about the business. And I was in the market for a head of engineering in early 2022. And Pete and I discussed it. And I was privileged enough to bring him on Board. And given his experience, you know, formerly being a CEO of a dev tools company, he had built a marketing organization, a sales organization, and scaled to five million ARR. You know, I knew he was going to be much more than a head of engineering. But he even I had super high expectations for that. But you know, he really, you know, it dramatically exceeded those expectations. And I think it became very obvious to me that he was just way better operationally than I was in terms of like the mechanics of management, you know, organization building, managing marketing, managing sales. He had done it before and it was pretty clear. And I, you know, at the time, just to be transparent, you know, I was solo founder CEO, moved around the country a couple of times. I had two little kids, you know, now they're two and four, but have also started a family during the course of this journey and just like I I needed like a co-founder figure to share the load. And, you know, because like I, I didn't have the time to work on what my superpowers are, which is kind of this cross product of engineering, DevRel, and marketing, I think is where I excel. And the other stuff is like, I, you know, I think he'd do a much better job of that. So it just made a ton of sense. I think I'm very lucky in that I don't think it's a repeatable process for a lot of founders to do what I did because you need that other human who you know well who would have been, you know, I think if Pete hadn't, you know, had his own company at the time, we might have just co-founded something from the from day one and had like enormous trust context and like the transition to bring him in and then move him to the CEO position was like super smooth. I think it was like super obvious to everyone. They knew it wouldn't have it wasn't going to be like this massive culture shift because like Pete and I are so aligned on so many issues. So I think the entire team was super excited about it. And the transition was, you know, really smooth, no leadership changes, no attrition, the company started performing better. So I think it was like obvious pretty quickly that that is the right move. So diving into the business a little bit, how does Dagster monetize? I see a cloud offering. Is there also a licensed enterprise distribution? No, we only do a cloud product. So just for context for the audience, Dagster is a you know data orchestration platform. 
And, you know, you can think of, you think about it, like you write data pipelines in this Python framework for, for building data pipelines and orchestrating, meaning ordering computations and modeling the assets that get produced by those computations. You can install it open source and people have deployed that to production or a ton of people. Um, I should say we have thousands and thousands of users, but the cloud product allows us to do a ton of the hosting on your behalf. So, you know, most of our enterprise customers have this hybrid product where we host the control plane, which is, you know, you think about it like everything complicated, like the metadata database and long running processes that monitor things and whatnot. Then they run their actual compute that does the data pipelines and their infrastructure. So, you know, there's a cloud product you sign up for. We can host a bunch of the bunch or all of the compute. And then also we add enterprise features on top of it, SSO alerting, gobs and gobs of features that generally deal with you know complexity in the enterprise that companies typically pay for. So that's our primary business model is uh, you sign up for DAX to cloud, um, you swipe your credit card or talk to our sales pr- people, and you can have the best experience of a data orchestration platform in the world, in our opinion. So I noticed that Daxter sells to small teams. Like you said, you can sign up for like 100 bucks um, and also to large enterprise I'm wondering, does the small teams business actually add up to real revenue or is it just a pipeline for enterprise customers? So I think in terms of what investors care about and you know what the long-term trajectory of the business is, we certainly conceptualize it as mostly a, a driver of pipeline, yes, but a broader adoption as well. So there's tons of users that use our hosted product that wouldn't use our open source product. And simply because they don't want to host their own compute infrastructure, which is totally reasonable. So I guess, you know, if you kind of boil everything onto business, like, yes, there is, you know, it's a source of enterprise leads for sure. And, but it's also a source of more adoption, which means more people talking about the product more people having you know being passionate about the product cuz an underlying flywheel of adoption is also essential for the long-term commercial success of the company. So I think like that's the most interesting component of it that the it used to be say 10 years ago that you'd have an open source product and you'd be like really pulling teeth to use the commercial or the hosted product. I think the pendulum has really shifted now where tons of people wouldn't consider adopting an open source technology if it didn't have hosting options, just because of the way that the entire world has shifted towards more hosted services, which is, you know, I think a win-win for everyone involved. So one of the underappreciated challenges of a tech startup is how to price your offering. I saw a note on the pricing page about an old plan and a new plan. The new plan's a little complex. I, you know, not being an expert, I, I couldn't really quite follow it. Can you talk a little bit about the pricing journey and where and why you ended up where you are? Totally. So I like to say if building an infrastructure company were a video game, Pricing is the final boss. <laughs> and that actually even undersells it because iterating on your pricing model is a continuous process where you have to make sure that it's working for everyone involved, that you know, we can run a healthy business and that the customers, you know, feel like they're getting a fair deal in terms of, you know, because in the end they need to get more value than they pay for. You're correct to point out that the initial pricing 
was simpler than the current model. You know, initially we started out where, you know, we want to have like no seats limit and just charge on consumption. I felt that a very fair way of doing consumption was to just charge on the number of minutes your pipelines run. So the issue with that, and I think this is a good takeaway for your audience, is that your customers have to morally accept the pricing plan. Like it has to make sense to the underlying way that they think. And the problem in a data pipelining solution, if you're charging by the, say, by runtime, is that frequently what you're doing in orchestration is that you are like calling out to Snowflake or Databricks or some other heavyweight computational system that does all the heavy lifting of the compute. So from the standpoint of the customer, they're paying us just to kind of wait for an API call to complete. That shifts the mind of the customer to think of us as just a compute hosting service. And if you're just doing that, the value proposition or product doesn't make sense. So the pricing impacts the way that the customer perceives the value of the product, which is obvious when you say it out loud, but isn't obvious when you're kind of in it. We really stepped back and looked at this. The real value in an orchestration system is in the kind of the control signals and the metadata. Like concretely, you open up Orchestrator or our Orchestrator and you know you see all these fancy Gantt charts of what's going on. You have a ton of visibility. And then the words that our users often use is that, oh, Dagster is like the single pane of glass, right? That consolidates my entire data platform. I have visibility into all this stuff. So that's where they perceive the value. They do not perceive the value as like a hosted compute service. So that had the benefit of being simple, but was not kind of, didn't actually align with the product uh, value that the users perceived. So we switched to charging based on the more, the metadata and control plane events that drive our UI. I think the other thing is that for founders in the audience is that you have to have a pricing model that works for sales. And early on, you don't have enough data to know how much consumption there's going to be for a typical a customer for like, say, the next 12 months. And you know, with the way sales works, they have to hit an ARR number that adds up to their quota that determines whether they can feed their children or not. So it's very important to the sales team. And so we had to also add sort of a, a per seat component that effectively acts as a platform fee for our enterprise customers that allows us to kind of project and forecast AR that would be appropriate to the value it's going to deliver to the customer. You also have to think about the internal incentives and how it's going to work for salespeople who are reliant on selling your product in order to uh, you know send their kids to college. I'm going to pivot a little bit back to tech for a second, but really more to talk about the open source community. What's interesting about Dagster is that it reminds me a little bit about the battle between Perl and Python. There were open source tools in your area that existed before, but they were a little bit, you know, hackier or more more challenging. Can you talk about what are some of the challenges of building an open source community in an already competitive market where you needed a lot of features just to get the baseline of functionality? And then how did you focus on either getting new or getting some of the developers to switch into your platform? You need to make sure that 
you have an audience that cares about what you care about and therefore and is very differentiated on that dimension to the point where they're willing to take a take risk to bet on you to work around missing features or missing integrations that might exist in a more mature solution so identifying that small subset i think is extremely critical there's now i think a kind of standard reading for silicon valley founders which is peter thiel's book zero to one and he talks about how you start with a small market and dominate it and then move on to progressively larger markets and i think that really really resonates with me especially in developer tools one kind of approach and this is kind of the nature of tools that i like to work on too is that what you can do is pick this the audience that you think has the most leverage in the organization so if you you know and for us it's like the data platform engineer like there's engineers whose entire job in life is to serve stakeholders who build data pipelines on top of a data platform that they build. And a huge part of that is setting up a great developer workflow with CICD and testing so you can actually, you know, maybe actually know if you're going to break something before you push to production, which is very frequently not the case in in data pipeline. So I think like our, you know, early audience was really people who really got it that testing and fast feedback loops in developer life cycles is like the baseline foundation of productivity. And productivity is just huge in working in software because productivity is not just about doing tasks more efficiently. It's about making entirely new things possible. So yeah, I guess I kind of went far afield there, but to circle back to the beginning of the question, you know, I think it's audience selection and being deliberate about that is really important. Recently, HashiCorp changed their license, and I see that Dagster is published in its own GitHub repo. You know, so you're under the Dagster repo. Dagster is your trademark. How can you assure the community that if the board decides to sell the company to Oracle, for example, that they won't change the license immediately? And have you considered moving the Dagster open source project to community governance and making, making it safer to use for the future? As someone who's gone through a foundation process for another technology, you know, we moved GraphQL to its own open source foundation with community governance. I can, I understand kind of the, you know, I have a pretty deep understanding of the trade offs here. I think it's a question of maturity and life cycle. The risk that you said exists. Yeah, the board could, there could be a boardroom coup and, you know, like, I'm out and Pete's out and then like we're sold to Oracle or something. By the way, the prob- probability that is approximately zero, but let's theoretically do it. Like, the- And then Oracle could change the license. Like That is possible. I don't think that's a realistic risk in any sort of near term. So if we you know, had community governance, like it would reduce, eliminate that risk. However, community has a ton of overhead. And we're just the beginning of our journey for innovating and we want to be able to move quickly and respond to feedback quickly, build features, you know, and have complete control in that way. And that's definitely the right trade-off for us right now. Compare and contrast that to the GraphQL story. You know, with GraphQL, we open sourced a spec, a document that was 
like meant to be very stable from day one and evolve pretty slowly over time. So in terms of the technical artifact there, it actually matched like having a foundation process and governance over it made a ton of sense. But for Dagster in the immediate future, you know, we're having more centralized control and increased pace of execution definitely makes the most sense to us. So I'm going to move to a temporal question about 2023. A lot of tech companies struggled in 2023. The Times reported that 3,200 venture-backed tech companies went out of business in 2023. So, of course, I don't know how many normally go out of business, but still it seems like a lot. I I was wondering, was 2023 a good or a bad year for Dagster? And did you buck the trend and grow 100%? Or did you also feel, you know, pressures on budgets from enterprise customers? We had a great year. So not only did we grow 100%, we grew 400%. And our NDR was north of 150%, which means our existing customers were also increasing their contract sizes. I feel great about the business, especially being able to grow this quickly in this environment. I am also grateful that we didn't raise a round of financing at a wildly inflated valuation with too much capital in the Fed bubble in 2021. Because at the time, certainly it was like frustrating. A bunch of my peers were you know, all of a sudden the CEOs of billion-dollar companies, even though they, in reality, weren't that far along the journey. Now, I think a lot of those people kind of are in a pretty tough spot, and they've had to do layoffs, and that's painful. We kind of stuck to our fundamentals there, so feel very good about it. I still think the pain is going to be very real for the industry through 2024, maybe even into 25, because yes, they're there's an advantage to raising a bunch of capital too, in that you have a long runway. And these, a bunch of these companies, they have so much cash in the balance sheet and the interest rates have gone up that they actually their interest is actually a meaningful source of income too. You know, there is more there there are more waves of company death coming in 24 and 25, I guess I'll put it that way. But we're on a great trajectory and I think we've raised an appropriate capital to the progress in the business. And we've been able to raise you know, we were able to raise a B in 2023, which was a very challenging process, but it felt great to be able to do that. Not many other companies were able to do that. Here's a question, and it's a little bit about engineering priorities. So you have an open source project of which your team contributes a lot of code to, and you also have a commercial cloud product. Can you just talk sort of at a high level from an R&D perspective, like how much of your budget gets invested into your product versus how much gets invested into the open source? And how do you balance those priorities? It's actually hard to tease apart because if you're an engineer who is working on a feature that will have a manifestation in cloud, often you're kind of spanning the entire stack and like working on the working on the open source, but then also working on some proprietary features. So it's difficult to cleave it that way. The other thing is that, you know, we reorganized the engineering, the R&D organization around company objectives fairly frequently. So I actually can't give you a precise number at any point or historically slash cumulatively about how much we've devoted to both open source and the cloud product specifically. I guess what I'll say is that like we still invest a, a ton of our end resources. I would say like 40% of engineers effectively worth exclusively on the open source. And then there's another tranche that 
kind of spans the entire stack. And then there's another tranche that, you know, like people who work on our cloud platform and all the DevOps and SRES work around keeping that alive and operational. So I don't know, I guess you can call 50-50, but it's actually really difficult to put an even semi-precise number on it. Well, it sounds like it's really been an amazing journey. And I'd like to remind you that it really hasn't been that long either. <laughs> Only 2018 doesn't seem like that it was that long ago to me. Well, it seems it seems like a long time to me, man. <laughs> it's, you know, that's the old joke. It's like dog years in a startup, you know, one year it feels like seven. So, and actually, you know, I have to pinch myself that, you know, I only moved away from the CEO seat like 15 months ago or something. It, feel, it feels like a lifetime. So, yeah, we covered a lot of topics, but I guess my, my last question for a guest is, is there any advice you have for entrepreneurs who are launching a business around an open source software product or project? I think one of the things that founders need to think about, I mean, I, this could be an entire hour podcast about all the advice that I would say, but a couple of things to think about. One is know when to go slow and know when to go fast there especially when you're talking about so-called you know one-way doors in Jeff Bezos speak where you're making decisions that are either extremely costly or impossible to undo company branding is challenging to change in terms of specifics of open source and dev tools you know api decisions especially in open source last forever and you know you need to be deliberate on that on a commercial product you can actually iterate extremely quickly. So I think it actually is important to kind of have two cultural muscles. One is much more upfront design oriented and collaborative with community and deliberate and thoughtful on API design, but you still want to have that super fast feedback and development when you're developing the commercial components of your product that are hosted. The other thing I would optimize for if I was traveling back in time and talk to myself is you know, optimize for getting yourself into a situation where you can have a super fast feedback loop with early users and customers where you still have the opportunity to change things and do so quickly. So if you're in a fast feedback loop, then you can make, but like if you're in a super fast feedback loop with a single customer, you know, you can make API changes much more easily. You know, and in the ideal situation still is if you are working on a technology internally at a company where you have access to all the code that uses it, that is just super valuable. You know, you're also basically getting a seed round for free because often you'll have people around you and you'll be working on it. So, you know, I don't think I truly internalized what an advantage that was to have it done the core R&D internal at a company. You know, I think like there's a little more resistance now to open sourcing internal tech with kind of, it's a less uh, idealistic environment these days. But those are kind of the top level things that come to mind. Well, great. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day, uh, Nick, and best of luck with Daxter Labs. Thanks. This was, uh, this is really a joy to be on this podcast. Thanks, Mike. Special thanks to the Daxter PR team for reaching out and helping with the logistics, cool graphics from Kamal Bhattacharjee, music from Brooke for Free, Chris Zabriskie, and Lee Rosevier, 
Next episode, recorded at the State of Open Conference, Peter Farkas, co-founder and CEO of Ferret TV. Hopefully, I'll have that out in the next week or so. So until then, thanks for listening.